Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Track, a podcast for runners. At Track, our aim is to shine a light on the UK running club scene. This podcast is dedicated to and centred upon the committed club runner, the committed amateur. This week, we have some race news. We cover the latest news, including the announcement of the nominees for Athlete of the Year, elite entry lists at Valencia, including a GB cohort, and some details on the Birmingham Commonwealth Games schedule. We also have an interview with Aldershot Farnham and district team manager and talented runner in his own right, Mike Boucher. Once again, I'm joined by Kat Hutchinson and Robbie Campbell. How are things, Robbie? Yeah, good. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, how are you? Very good, thank you. And how are you, Kat? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How's both of your training been since we last spoke? Uh, yeah, same, same really, just building up by five miles a week. So slow process, but I'm up to 25 last week, so up to 30 this week. Good and bad days, like with all injuries. Sometimes after Sunday's run, I could feel it, but today it's fine after a day's rest. So yeah, just kind of going to keep trying to build up get back to some decent mileage and then maybe look to enter Newport next spring if I can be running 50 miles soon. Got race pace today, Kat, looking at your Strava. It, it was a little quicker than, than I should be going. Still struggling with that running mantra of don't be an idiot, don't be an idiot. <laughs> yeah, just be careful not to miss the don'ts off the front. Yeah, it is a real art, that discipline of just never going faster than you should. But so far, I, I feel like I've got away with it. So we'll see over the next 24 hours how it feels. <laughs> so Newport Marathon Cat is in April next year, if all goes to plan. Is that right? Yeah, that's the plan. Or Anything around then would be good, but I think Newport seems to fit in well. So I've got halfway to enter in it a couple of times, but something keeps going wrong and then I get distracted and don't enter but yeah I'll get that entered you fancy Newport as well Robbie it could be I, you know what I was I was um I was just thinking that yeah I think that's that's potentially one that I could look at really it's flat yeah. isn't it they they it's, said it as flat Robbie yeah I mean that is that is what I'm after <laughs> yeah I'm not sure how picturesque it is but um no have you done it before Kat no I haven't I think it gets quite lonely doesn't it yeah. When, when you kind of get out into the sticks. Yeah, no big crowds of London. <laughs> but then, to be fair, even if you did London next year or a big city, then you're probably not going to get big crowds wherever you go. So you may as well run somewhere like Newport and Pancake Flat. Speaking yeah. of marathons, Kat, when we were talking a while ago, and it turned out that you said when you've run marathons in the past and you're listening to music, you will just listen to one song alone for the full marathon yeah yeah (laughs) it was after that Aaron Scott interview and he he confessed to listening to Miley Cyrus on his runs and I ran the whole of Tokyo Marathon listening to one Miley Cyrus song (laughs) I only downloaded it the night before but yeah that would do anything I like at the time so I ran the whole of Tokyo Marathon to that and then I ran the whole of London Marathon to cheap drills by Sia. That is, that, I mean, that's, that's unusual, isn't it? <laughs> I just find I'm a bit like that in life. Like, if I've got a favourite jumper, I'll just wear that jumper until, until I have another favourite jumper and then I'll just wear that. And same with food. If I like something, I just eat that. 
and and so I think it's just the same. I really like that song at the time, so I'm just like I'll just listen to that. <laughs> so what what Miley Cyrus song was it? Not that I know, uh, but so how, hold on a minute. So you listen to the, so you must listen to this song about seventy five times in a row, and you can't remember yeah. what it's called. <laughs> I'm trying to, I don't know it's title and I'm trying to avoid having to sing. <laughs> it says don't stop, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose that's quite apt, isn't it? Don't stop. From yeah. Don't stop. Don't dream it's over. No, no, yeah. that's not. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, don't stop. Yeah, I've got it. Don't stop. <laughs> don't stop. Have you listened to it since though, Kat? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes okay. it comes up on my Spotify playlist. I listen to it while I'm out running. I don't like it the same anymore. <laughs> uh, I Not sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just all right now. So, so Robbie, you're running a marathon in April. You've only got one song. What are you going for? Cool. I don't, I don't know. I wish I, I wish you'd asked me this before, Ben. What, what would you, what would yours be? Well, I tell you, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer. But I tell you what, I did do this morning, Cat, knowing we might talk about this. <laughs> on my run this morning, I only listened to one song on repeat. <laughs> And I did a six mile run this morning, just listening to one song. And it wasn't actually that bad, to be honest with you. You you stop listening to it after a while though, don't you? You, It's just sort of just background noise, I think. What song was it? Oh, it was like, it's a new song actually that I hadn't heard much before. Um, A song by Bleachers featuring featuring, uh, the one and only Bruce Springsteen um, called (laughs) Chinatown. So I'd only heard it the night before. So I thought, I'm going to give this a go. And uh, yeah, so for about 35, 40 minutes this morning, I just listened to that song on repeat. And Yeah, if, not, if you like it and like you, you want to listen to it, it's not too bad. You just kind of... I mean, that's, that's a good idea, Ben, for you, isn't it? It's then that gives you your daily Bruce Springsteen allowance and a run all in one. So you don't have to listen to Bruce, listen to the boss again that day. Well, yeah. I mean, the two, the two best parts of the day, really, running in, in the boss. <laughs> Just got images of you running around Pitchcroft, punching the air and <laughs> giving it the full kind of the boss on stage. My, my tight jeans. <laughs> should we uh, should we should we get our heads together and think of our tracks for the next episode, maybe, and continue the saga? Seeing as there's no racing to talk about. Sounds good. Well, there aren't really any races to talk about. The only race that we could see in terms of official race was actually a gold label road race. And this was a couple of weeks ago on the 8th of November, the Istanbul Marathon. No real British interest at the top end at all. Um, But the the men's race was won in 209.57 by the Kenyan Felix Kamutai. And the women's race was won in 218, again, by a Kenyan athlete, Ruth Chepnagic. Otherwise, very little races um, happening. Lots of virtual races happening. There are obviously still opportunities to get out and run hard for people if, if they want them. But um, no real official races happening. We had a, our own little sort of virtual race into club champs. We So Chris Croswell um, set up a little three-way Interclub champs between Worcester AC, Black Pair Joggers and the Morven Buzzards, which was a 5k. I think it got a lot of people out and actually focused their, their running for a week or two, which was good. I did do the third virtual race for the uh, Interclub thing. I must admit it is, I just can't, I just can't, I just can't do it. It's just, I just can't race myself. Like, I, don't, I mean, some people are running such quick time. I don't know how they do it. I just, it's just... From the first step of any time trial or virtual race I've done this summer or this autumn, literally from the first step, I just want to pull out. 
I just, I just can't get my head around what kind of, it just doesn't seem to be kind of making sense in my head why I'm kind of doing it really. I suppose yeah. that there is something in that. I think as you're right, Robbie, some people are just, can just switch it on, can't they? Whereas others really need either the competition of other people around you or just something a bit more important on the line to sort of dig a bit deeper, I suppose. I think it's like, I mean, I think race day as well. It's, if you think about everything that builds up to kind of getting on the line, it's, you know, obviously the, the, the training, the tapering, the eating before, the routines, the, you know, and that kind of all builds up into that kind of nervous energy, doesn't it? And I don't know, when you just, when you, when you just kind of try and do everything before a time trial, you just, you just seem to kind of try and switch it on an hour before. And, well, it obviously works for some people and, and not for others. But England Athletics did announce after the lockdown they've said that all indoor sessions all coaching activity all indoor track and field competitions not to go ahead until this lockdown is over so that's obviously why there's been no races a few races which were supposed to happen so the podium cross country which we had spoken about a couple of times before was scheduled for the 7th of november Um, hopefully that will be happening on the 12th of december now if the lockdown finishes when it should do or it's when it's scheduled to so that should be our first sort of real high quality racing in the UK over the over the country that we see this year which was something to look forward to but otherwise in terms of news the main thing we're going to talk about because we're getting to the end of the the calendar year now we're starting to see a few um, athlete of the year competitions or nominations crop up and the athletics weekly nominees have been announced um, there were a few sort of backlash is probably too strong a word but when the nominees were announced for best british athlete which we'll go through in a second but there's quite a few people on upset that mark scott wasn't on the list but let me just run through the athletics weekly nominees for british male athlete you've got daniel rowden uh, jake smith mo farah harry Coppel, jake whiteman and andrew posy and for the British Female Athlete of the Year nominees, we've got Gemma Riki, Jesse Knight, Holly Bradshaw, Laura Muir, Amy Pratt, and Laura Waitman. So most of those names we've spoken about, and most of those males and females are sort of runners rather than any other athletes. But what did you guys think when you saw these these list of nominations? What did you think, Kat? I think Jake Smith and Daniel Rowden are great ones to be on the list. Mark Scott probably should have got on the British male list, but I think... Jake Smith is, stands out for me as probably the best this year. I, that's who I'd go with. Yeah, so we saw Jake Smith, obviously, most recently in, in the World Half Marathon Champs with that amazing run. What about you, Robbie? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I definitely definitely agree with Mark Scott. I mean, I wonder whether he's he's just kind of a little bit persecuted for being based outside the country, maybe, which I know that's what a few people have kind of said. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of out of sight, out of mind. But a British athlete, I, thought, I mean, it probably comes down to performance of the year. I thought Jake Whiteman going under 330 in the 1500, probably just about um, kind of pips Jake Smith, really. What were your thoughts, Ben? Yeah, well, I think to Mark Scott, you think, so he obviously broke the British record, didn't he? So you think if you're breaking a British record, you'd at least yeah. get the, the list for British male athlete of the year. Um, so it, that record is. And in, interestingly, so there was also some kind of criticism levelled at, at Joanna Copes for Mark Scott not being on the list of 117 athletes who have basically been offered this kind of Olympic membership um, as part of like a world-class programme mm-hmm. um, building up to next year, which is a bit vague on the details, but I presume it's, 
it's all around funding and, and et cetera. And again, Mark Scott was, is kind of nowhere to be seen on that. Mm. Um, and again, kind of, you know, podium 5k, Chris Barnes has, has been quite vocal in that, and rightly so, I think. So for a British female athlete, a few names we've spoken about quite a lot as well. So we've got Laura Waitman, uh, Amy Pratt, who's one that we're, we've spoken about, particularly in the, her performance in the British champs. Uh, Laura Muir, obviously, and Laura Muir has also been announced as one of the World Athletics Athlete of the Year nominees. Also on the female list, we've got Gemma Riki, Jesse Knight, and as I said, Holly Bradshaw. Um, so who stands out for you there on that list, Kat? Laura Waitman probably just had a really good season, hasn't she? Really solid season, a lot oh. of racing, so come on the most this year. So, And also Amy Pratt, she was great to watch. Look forward to watching more of her. So, yeah, probably those two. Probably agree with that. I think it's, I think Laura Moore will probably nip it for the kind of for the for for the standards that she's setting. But I think between her and Laura Waitman, they've probably got it locked down, haven't they? I think you're right. I think Laura Muir will probably win. I'd quite like Laura Waitman to to get it though. Um, probably just because of our uh, what what we we enjoy watching in terms of distance races. But um, yeah, I think Laura Muir will probably win. In terms of the junior athletes, Max Bergen is on the list, which is again a name we've spoken about a lot for British junior male athlete and for British junior female athlete. So we've got Amy Hunt, Lucy Jane Matthews, and the name we've mentioned a lot, Keely Hodgkinson. A few other interesting categories and we're going to have to get our thinking caps on for the the first ever track awards night coming up in December but they've got the greatest male athletes the greatest female athlete international athletes of the year uh, world masters athletes of the year so a few names to pick out there obviously Tommy Hughes is in the world masters male athlete category the greatest male athlete we've got people like Emil Zatopek Haile Gabriselassie included in the greatest female athlete nominees. Got people like Tiranesh de Barber, uh, Shelly Ann Fraser Price for the sprinters. So those the winners will be announced in their December issue, apparently. And for those of you who don't know, Athletics Weekly is now a monthly magazine, um, despite its name. Surely for the uh, for for the the track awards in December, we can just copy and paste all of these, but then put Mark Scott into the best British male athlete. Yeah, keep the uh, keep the workload to a minimum. That's what it's all about, mate. World Athletics Athlete of the Year, we've mentioned Laura Muir's been mentioned, I've uh, been nominated there. Obviously, this, these nominees sort of stretch across disciplines and, and different um, athletic events, but people we've mentioned, Joshua Cheptegei on the list, Paris Chip Chipchichir, Sifan Hassan, Faith Kipyegon, Jacob Kaplimo, who we saw won the World Half Marathon Champs, all on the list. So there is quite a lot of um, representation for the distance runners on the World Athletics Athlete of the Year as well. So it's obviously awards season. Who's, um, who's your picks from, from those, Ben? Duplantis, who's on the list, the pole vaulter might be in the shout of winning just because he's broken world records um, yeah. throughout the year. And also Carsten Warholm's on the list. I don't know if he's broken the world record yet, but I know he's close to it. He, I don't think he has, has he? Has he? I thought he was just, has he broken the European record maybe? So if I had to guess, I'd say Duplantis will, will get it this year. Being a runner, I'd, I'd quite like Chep to, to get it, but I think Duplantis is, people seem to make quite a lot of, has he got the indoor and the outdoor world records? Is That's quite a thing, isn't it, for a pole vaulter? Yeah, but you, you do wonder what else Chep the guy would have had to have done if he doesn't win it. Um, that's true. 
you're fairly hard done by, wouldn't you? If you won a, if you ran a couple of world records and didn't get athlete of the year, you've had to go at the pole vaulting cat, haven't you? <laughs> uh, no, I think pole vaulting's about the only one I haven't tried. <laughs> I've tried the high jump and long jump and triple jump. <laughs> I was was it was was pole vaulting the one that they said you couldn't try because for health and safety reasons because you hadn't had too much, hadn't had enough experience. Is that right? Yeah, it's a bit of a dangerous one, I think. Yeah. Everything else, they're happy for us just to <laughs> and learn it, learn it ten minutes before. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can back on with the four hundred hurdles, but you can't do the pole vault. <laughs> <laughs> the hundred hurdles I've done were just learning minutes before the race. <laughs> if, you go, if you go wrong in that, you go wrong on the finishing straight in front of everyone. <laughs> you have to run and jump in that event, so it's tricky. Yeah. Other exciting race news coming up is the Valencia Elite Marathon. So on the 6th of December, um, and the elite fields have been announced recently for Valencia, and there is some GB interest here as well as a, a host of world-class athletes. Um, so GB athletes in the male side of things will be Scott Overall, Derek Hawkins, Matt Klaus, Peter Legrice, Mike Cannenberg um, are all set to run. Callum Hawkins is also listed among the pacemakers. And I believe Paul Martelletti may also be running in Valencia as well. Um, the only GB woman I could see on the start list was a athlete called Anya Garb and she has a 2.59 PB of, of club decorum and tring so not a name I was familiar with but the only GB woman I could see on the Valencia start list um, a fairly stacked field as you would expect for an elite only marathon um, in the men's side of things 21 athletes have best times under 207 and 35 with times under 210 and in the female side of things there's 28 athletes with PBs below 230 and if we compare this to the the London elite marathon that we saw a while ago seems to be a lot more athletes on the start line for this one so how they are organizing that I'm not sure but there seem to be over 100 men on the start list and approximately 70 women which will be a shortened slash looped course um, compared to the normal Valencia course Interestingly, the top 10 marathon finishes in each of the men's and women's races will secure Olympic qualification uh, with the event having what's called platinum label status. My initial thought is, is it, is it, safe, as in, is it safe that it's not going to get cancelled? I'm, I'm not sure how long this has been. Um, this has obviously been organised for. I know that the start list was the Brits were um, released quite a while ago or some of them, weren't they? So... I mean, things are. I think things are changing in Spain all the time. So my first instinct is that I really hope that, that happens. Well, yeah. I mean, it's going to be. Hopefully, it will happen. It will be a great watch. I mean, potentially, it's going to be better than London in terms of kind of times, um, purely because of the, it, it probably going to be better conditions unless they're really unlucky. December in Valencia is always pretty good temperature, isn't it? So, um, and obviously, it's a it's a place for people to run fast. Don't know much about Mike Hallenberg or Derek Hawkins, to be honest. So I was having a quick look at them um, when the list was released, but um, I think Matt, Matt Clouds and uh, Scott Overall and Peter Legrice, and also, like you say, Pete, Paul Martelletti will all be uh, kind of in good form for it. No, I wonder why, Kat, there's not more GB women on the list there. 
Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's just a bit disappointing in the women's field for GB athletes. I don't know. They, I mean, I suppose a lot of the big ones ran at London, so they targeted that. Well, in that when we spoke to Dan Nash, he seemed to think, who obviously ran London, he seemed to think it would have been too much of a, a short turnaround to run both. So maybe, as you say, for the women who ran London, too short of a time frame to run both. I mean, obviously... Paul Martelletti, I think, is running both, but he 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 runs marathons all the time. Matt Clowes, I think, paced at London for a, a period of time, um, so didn't run the full distance. Um, so maybe that explains it, and perhaps just not as much depth on the women's side of things as there are in the men's. Yeah, I mean, at the front end, as we said, 28 women have gone below 230 before, so it's obviously yeah. going to be a very fast or potentially fast race um, at the front end. So it'll be good to watch. Um, hopefully it will happen. It's that loop, loop course again as well, isn't it? So I think we talked about it after London and a half marathon that Samantha Harrison ran in. Where was that? Poland. Poland, yeah. That was, a, that was another loop course as well. So these are going to be more and more common, aren't they, over the, over the coming kind of months, I think. Yeah, hopefully this one won't have the switchbacks that that one had. <laughs> yeah, or the dodgy carpet at the finish. <laughs> and hopefully better weather than London. Okay, we saw a few more announcements uh, recently, guys. So we saw that Rome and Istanbul are going to host the European Champs in 2023 and 24, respectively. We also saw that Dublin and Torino to host the European Cross Country as already planned, but just a year later than planned. So uh, the European Cross Country Champs will now be held in Dublin in 2021 and Torino in 2022, uh, a year later than previously planned. We saw a week or so ago that Birmingham Commonwealth Games in 2022 um, have revealed their medal event programme. So you can now jump onto that website and see when some of the events are going to take place. It will be the first major multi-sport event to award more medals to women than men across the whole programme. And also the headline from uh, the athletic side of things was that in the race walk events, a 10,000 metre track race will replace the 20k road event. And also athletes will be racing at, on the track at the redeveloped Alexander Stadium. Um, obviously, lots of work has been going on at the Alexander Stadium in preparation for the Commonwealth Games. Um, so we now know what's going to be happening and when. Seems like we have a, a doping section every episode, Robbie. Um, and this time, Elijah Manangoy is the name uh, to mention, who's got a two-year ban, again, for whereabouts failures. So, uh, yeah, so Manangoy, another high-profile Kenyan former kind of world champion, is going gonna to miss the Tokyo Olympics after the classic whereabouts failures. <laughs> 2017 World 1500 Meter Champions. Classic excuses were so he missed tests on July the 3rd, November the 12th, and December the 22nd in 2019. And his explanations for those, including delayed luggage after a flight, which left him with no house keys, um, heavy traffic at 5 to 6 a.m. after working a night shift for the Kenyan police. Um, and a mistake by a delegate logging his whereabouts information on his behalf. So, yeah, do you buy any of those, you two? No, I think those... <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure what systems they put in place, but surely they they could have a thing where you can update, you know, if you message them to say, my flight's delayed, I'm not going to be where I said I was, 
then fair enough, it could be a lie, but you can't do that every day. So it gets to a point where you could prove that you had sent that to them. So you, so it would have some sort of, people would believe it if, you know, on one particular day, it was just bad luck. But it looks like they tried him twice reasonably close together in November and December. And I guess that at that point, if you are doping, it's too soon to stop and so you don't get your third violation. Yeah, I think in response, Menangoy has pretty much come out and said to other athletes, sort of let this be a warning and take it seriously because um, the consequences are are real. I mean, I suppose there, there is an element to it where maybe we, we are overestimating what these athletes, you know, kind of the thought that they put into it. Maybe they are just flying by the seat of their pants and that results in kind of bad organisation and therefore missing, you know, these tests. But I don't know, it doesn't seem like, I mean, for professional athletes. The luck of having a delayed flight and being tested that day. I mean, I'm guessing he would have had to prove that flight was delayed. That's something you can check. Hmm. And if you could check and actually find out that 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 story checked out then it might have a bit more the good thing about these cases is you can sort of have a deep dive if you want to and read all of the the detail and the documents they are always all available so the decision documents are available um, and the explanations on the sanctions they've received are all available as well they're normally fairly hefty documents Hmm. but they are all out there to read i'll drive i'll drive just make my mind up from uh kind of half truths and reading small bits of articles to be honest Ben so it's probably for the best let's just think yeah we'll go with that that's what we've done up to this point so we might as well carry on you saw today that the US Senate had passed a bill to criminalize doping Robbie yeah so so this is um this is quite a big thing really because ultimately what they're doing is criminalizing doping at international sporting events so this is half the press um, so only got released today. The fraud element of it, um, you know, effectively you are kind of defrauding uh, the sport and your competitors and obviously you're kind of making money and there's games out of um, cheating. So the United States Senate has passed a bill that will allow officials to prosecute anyone involved in doping international sporting events. So it's going to be called Rodchenkov Anti-Doping Act, named after Russian whistleblower Grigory Rodchenkov. So he's the former head of Moscow's anti-doping laboratory. Um, he fled Russia in late 2015 with detailed evidence of the state-sponsored doping regime he masterminded, um, which ultimately led to Russia's ban from the 2018 Winter Olympics. Um, and he's actually living under a witness protection program in the US. If you haven't seen Icarus, definitely watch that. The, um, the weird thing about this article is that he's doing an interview in a balaclava and sunglasses to protect his uh, protect his identity, but then it's got his name underneath. <laughs> so, something's gone wrong somewhere. We've also got our weekly Mo Farah update on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Kat, have you been watching? I have. I've been watching with the kids. I was discussing with Robbie then. I'm not I'm not sure it's appropriate, but so far nothing's been too awful. Yeah. How's no getting on? Yeah, he fell out of his hammock on the first night. <laughs> 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 you had one job, stay in your hammock. 
there was a part of it where they said the log drop was miles away and both the kids were like, oh, well, they could send Mo to go get the logs. Log drop. Sounds <laughs> like... I was like, no, but how'd you get the firewood? <laughs> All right. I thought you were refer referring to uh, the long run on a Sunday morning then for a minute. And how's your mate Vernon Kay getting on, Robbie? Well, I was just about to say the same. I, I, unfortunately, I haven't managed to uh, catch any of it yet. So I was going to ask our resident critic, Cat to uh, update us on Vernon's. What's he up to? How are his yeah. teeth? He's got great teeth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, bright so far. Really bright. Not much, not much going on with him. Got no phone, so he's not getting into any trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was, I was reading his Twitter account actually. Last, um, I was doing a bit of Vernon K research in a in a pretty low moment. His, his tweets, are, his tweets are absolutely classic. <laughs> the, the, the best, the best one I found was. Um, the Strictly Come Dancing judges are by far the best on TV. Constructive, funny, honest and classy. I feel I can dance just listening to them all. Four, three exclamation marks. Not one, not two, three exclamation marks. Ben, have you watched any of it? No, I've not. I've not watched any of it. Um, I might have to check in at some point. Yeah. Uh, I'm more of a bake-off man, but there we are. That's another story. On a, on, a ser on a serious note, it did actually, uh, I know we were joking about it on the last episode, but there was actually a little bit of backlash about Mo being on there and how he was going to train and his build-up to the Olympics mm. and how it kind of compromises it. So I think by the end, he's going to struggle to beat Vernon in a 5,000 metres on the track, let alone chapter guy. So. Good. Well, we, I think we've spoken more about I'm a celebrity than anything else. So... Um... <laughs> I think we're doing a good job. Robbie, speaking of good job, the interview this week um, is actually a really, really interesting one. Uh, you spoke uh, to Mike Boucher. Basically, it really fits the bill of uh, getting an insight into the UK running club scene. How did you find the interview? A really interesting one. So, so Mike is predominantly linked with Aldershot, Farnham and District, and he's got over 20 years experience of kind of being at the sharp end of, um, of, of kind of club racing. Some brilliant conversation around the scene, his own running career, lots of insight into kind of what success looks like in terms of, in terms of as a team with Aldershot um, and also kind of his affiliation with some of the runners that he's managed and ran with over the years, which really are kind of some of the greatest that the UK's produced. So some really good kind of anecdotes in there. Yeah, just great, great bloke, good talker. Obviously, just so passionate about the sport, so knowledgeable about the sport. And I've kind of caught up with him briefly over the weekend just to kind of see how he was before we released the interview. And um, in our kind of brief kind of conversation, completely sums up Mike, really, is he? He updated me on the cross-country event that Oldershot, Farnham and District are trying to put on. So they're, they're still going to try and put that on in the spring. So they were really trying to push on. And with him being at the forefront of... Um, getting get, getting a cross country fixture on uh, for the Hampshire League, um, and then in the same breath talked about his own running, you know, over the next few months and and trying to get into a, a kind of two thirty shape at a marathon, potentially Wrexham or abroad. So, um, yeah, I mean, really interesting guy, really good to kind of talk to and hopefully to listen to and 
ultimately, I think you said before we started recording tonight, Ben, that, you know, from the outset of starting this podcast and imagining the insight that we'd get from certain people, this would have kind of, you know, like you say, fit the bill of kind of giving that insight into what it takes to compete and to ultimately succeed at the sharp end. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We hope you all enjoy it for those of you listening. We've also got some other exciting interviews coming up. So George has interviewed Josh Lunn. So that will be um, our next interview for our next episode. And this week also, Kat, you're hoping to have a chat with Ali Dixon. Pretty excited about that one. She's pretty much the first female runner that I remember when I really sort of realised that marathons weren't just for us to run, but there was an elite race going on too. Mm. So in 2017, that was kind of my first awareness of the elite race and watching her absolutely smash it that year. So this is going to be pretty exciting getting to have a chat with her on Thursday. Perfect. Well, yeah, we'll look forward to that. Anything else this week coming up for you guys? Anything else for you, Robbie, this week? Uh, nothing out of the usual, really. Just more more running, just trying to find a bit of consistency with kind of mileage and training just uh, and just... I just just keep enjoying it really and stay fit. Yeah, just carrying on, building up, hoping this injury stays at bay, enjoying just being out doing it. But I'm happiest when I'm running high mileage, so I just want to get back up. And yeah, other than that, just working in the hospital and drinking coffee with Coach John. <laughs> and Ben, you've got um your life could have changed dramatically by the next time we record. Possibly, yes. There might be a new a new family member by the next time we uh, record. So we're sort of nine days away from our due date for our first. So, yeah, so if this is the last podcast I'm ever on, you'll know why. Bloody um, <laughs> yeah, hell, don't, don't say that. Yeah. Me. We, we need you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> you can just do it. I'm a celeb podcast. That will, that will be it. Yeah. Well, that's, we were going to do that anyway, but we wanted to keep this going as well. cool i think that's us guys thanks very much for joining us thanks everyone for listening we hope you enjoy the interview and uh, we will see you again soon cheers guys bye bye This week on track, we're talking to Mike Boucher. Mike has been a strong club runner for over 20 years, building up a huge amount of experience over all distances and either over non-running disciplines. As well as training to race at a consistent level over a long period of time, Mike has been heavily involved with the successful Aldershot Farnham and District senior men's team, including being a direct influence as manager of the teams that have won the national relays, some of which have boasted some of the best runners that the UK have produced in recent times. Hi, Mike. Welcome to track. Uh, thank you. Glad to join you. We'll obviously cover quite a lot, hopefully, in the next uh, the next 45 minutes to an hour or so. But um, I think a good place to start is recent success that you've had on the road that you're undoubtedly proud of. So third at the Isle of Wight Marathon last week. Um, how are the legs feeling? Uh, Talk us through the race. Uh, yeah, the, the legs aren't feeling too bad, which I think I put down to the new super shoes. Um, I pulled up very well in the in the alpha flies, which I got got myself a pair on a pair of those. Okay. Um, so it was really good fun on the day. Um, it was London Marathon Day. I'd entered the original marathon, been deferred back to October, and then it became clear that us mere mortals weren't going to be allowed in that one. So I was so determined I was going to do a marathon that day. I actually entered three races. I entered Rexton, like a lot of the um, quick UK guys did. 
I entered one in Slovakia, the famous uh, Kasici Marathon, which is the longest running marathon in Europe. But unfortunately, coronavirus restrictions meant I wasn't going out to Slovakia. No one from the UK was going to get out there. And I entered the Isle of Wight, which is the longest running marathon in the UK. And this was the 64th Isle of Wight marathon. Um, this race was actually won by my coach, Mick Woods, in 1978. So there is a bit of a club history going back on this one, although that was on a different course. Um, this course was equally tough and uh, equally, equally hilly. As it turned out, um, the firm favourite for the race was Ross Skelton, who's a 64-minute half marathon runner. And Ross went out at quite a controlled pace for him, but um, with a local vet, Gary Marshall, and they were about 20 seconds up on me after just the one mile mark. So they went through one mile downhill, admittedly, in about five minutes 20. And I went through about 20 seconds, 25 seconds behind and just ahead of a young debutant who is um, 22-year-old James Maloney. As things unwound, James and myself got back to Gary and Ross, and by 10k we were together, and we ran the next six or seven miles together, going through halfway as a pack in 77 minutes. And then from that point, Ross kicked on and showed us you know, why he's a 64-minute half marathon runner, winning in a massive new course record of 2.28. And given the hills and the wind and the rain, that was worth, it's difficult to say, but that was, I'd say that was worth 222, 223 on, on a different course. Um, James did really well in round 232. And then myself and Gary was the battle of the over 40s. And I pushed on at 20, 20 miles to run 235, 23, which got me first vet and a new vet's course record by, I think, about seven or so minutes. So really, really pleased with that. So did you have a, uh, I suppose with the conditions, kind of any preconceived times goes out the window, but were you kind of aiming for a time on the morning of the race? Did you have something in mind? Um, yeah, I'm quite meticulous in my planning and we'll come to that later on. But, um, <laughs> I, I'd, done, I'd done a spreadsheet, I'd done some analysis on the elevation on each mile. I'd literally, um, I'd literally done a model and had, had a plan for which I was going to do. I'd then input the, the wind going out and the wind going back. And that kind of focused my mind, and then I got to halfway, and halfway into pure race. But at least, uh, at least, it, at least it meant I had an idea what I wanted to do. So I just had a bit of confidence when the miles were getting faster and slower, faster and slower, because you know it was a, a 5:45 mile one mile, a 6:15 mile the next, as we were rolling up and up and down the hills. Yeah. So I think that helped sort of focus my mind, keep myself in control, just let me know, yeah, this is fine, this is expected. You know, I've just climbed 30 meters in the in in the last mile, so not not a worry. So a couple of questions. So this James Maloney, um, this this is this debutant. Is, is he unattached? Is that correct on power of ten? Uh, he is now. However, during the race, we found out he he's not too far from the Aldershot area, okay. and he um, <laughs> and he happens to have gone. To, he happens to have gone to school with a few of our club members. Okay. <laughs> so so um, I'd like him to join a club very much, and if it was my club, even better. But in all seriousness, it would be great for him to join a club and sort of sort of move on to the next level. It wouldn't have surprised me if you were kind of tapping him up mid-race there, Mike, and uh, trying to get um, into his maybe while he was there. I was finding out who his friends were to um, to, 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 do, to do the work later on. <laughs> and, the, and the alpha flies, how did they hold up in the, uh, well, in, in the conditions as well? I love them. Um, I absolutely love, love them. I wasn't quite sure. I wasn't quite sure. I'd done a track 3,000. On them, in them the week before, um, just to see how they went. 
Yeah. But yeah, they were they they they, they were great. I mean, my legs my, my legs were hurting at the end. It wasn't that I stepped off the stepped off the race completely pain free, but um, also I got to the I got to the end of it and by Thursday I felt pretty good. Whereas some races I still feel rotten on the Saturday or the Sunday. So what we like to do with the uh, with our guests on track is start by talking about your PBs really, just to give a context to the people listening about the. Um, well, about the level that you're at and about the level that you've been at in the past. Uh, from the 3,000 mark, so 3,855.28, um, and that was uh, in 2003 at the Watford Open. Yeah, I ran sub-9 sub a handful of times, maybe three or four times, all, all about around that sort of time. Never got any quicker than 8.55, and in hindsight, possibly I might have done, but um, yeah, that's, that, 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 that was all I ever managed, and I certainly wouldn't get there anymore. And then same year, 5,000 metres, 1536. I'm not quite sure. I think it might actually be 1537. I think that was the Southern Men's League and they might have got me in the B string the wrong, the wrong way around that day. But that is my power of 10 PB. I just think <laughs> I might not quite, I might have been a second slower. Um, actually, I might have been a second slower in my career, but yeah. But I, I think I've been through the 5K mark and the 10K on the road in 1518. So. Okay. Yeah. So, you're, so, you, so you do the one second, you'll take that, that's fine. Yeah, yeah I'll take that, yeah. Um, and then we've got the 10,000 metres, uh, 32.41 in the 2003 Middlesex Champs. Yeah, that's it. That was a 5,000, 10,000 double. The 5,000 was on the Saturday and the 10,000 was on the Tuesday or the Wednesday. So I was really, really pleased with that one. Uh, and then the five miles, 26.08 in 2007, Wolverton five. Wolverton five. Yeah, that's the fastest five miles I ever did. I feel that I never did a really good five miles. Um, I mean, I'd have probably gone through in about twenty five forty in my ten k PB. Okay. So, yeah. Why? Why was that? Was that just like maybe lack of lack of races over five miles, or just not getting the right one on the right day? Yeah, I guess so. Um, I was never never afraid of racing, um, but there weren't as many races over five miles. It was just it just never never, never quite panned out the right right yeah. Uh, and then ten uh, k um, thirty two oh eight in two thousand and two at the Eastleigh ten k. Yeah, that was really good. Everything everything went 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 really well that day. I'm not quite sure where that came from to be honest. Eastleigh's a really quick course anyway, but yeah. that, that was that was the day I went through uh, in fifteen eighteen and through five k. Half marathon. 6939 um, in 2007 at Reading. Yeah, um, that was another run I was really happy with. And in terms of my PBs, um, it's possibly the one that I'm most satisfied with. Um, firstly, because obviously in terms of the round barriers, going underneath 70 is is like going underneath 230 for the marathon or yeah. 30 for 10k. It's just it's just just a, just the nature of the way we count numbers. It's a it's yeah. a it's it's a it's a it's a big chunk of time to get under. I'd flown back the night before from Portugal. I'd done a 90, 90 miles the week before and had about four hours sleep. And then I just got on the got on the back of a train. I remember just got on the back of some really decent athletes and just kept working, kept working, kept working. I kept thought, thinking I was about to fall to bits and I didn't. But in in hindsight, I think I left my London Marathon there on, on the streets of Reading. That was me cooked for that season. I never got it back for London, and London that year was a bit disappointing. Okay. And every time I did a decent half in the build-up to a marathon, I never did a great marathon. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And so one PB you haven't listed is the 10 miles. And I used to do the Sid Cup 10 quite a, quite a lot of years. And 
some advice to anyone I give for a marathon who wants to do a half in the build-up is if there's a decent 10 mile, do the 10 because you basically run at the same pace. And yeah. if you're cooked by eight or nine miles and a 10 mile, it's not very far. You're doing damage on the, you're not doing very much damage. Whereas in a half marathon, it's an extra, an extra five miles where you're just beating your legs up if you do get it not quite right. Yeah. Um, and then finally, your uh, your marathon PB, which was from 2008. And that's uh, that was at London when you finished 41st in 228.46. Um, yes, 2008, that was Beijing Olympic year. So it was an Olympic trial. And I think from memory, I was 17th Brit in the Olympic trial. Um, just behind a chap called Paul Martelletti, who's obviously gone on to great things. Paul's the same age group as me. He's maybe a month older than me. Um, it was his first serious marathon and myself, him, another guy from Victoria Park called Dave Alcock, who now runs up on the Wirral. We ran together most of the way. And then Paul got away from me in the last few miles, but yeah, really pleased with that one. And that was kind, kind of my peak at the marathon. And that's obviously dipping under that magic 2.30 as well. So you must Yeah, my, my, my second time under. I've done 2.29 a couple of years before. So yeah. I've run... 228, 229, 230, 31, 32, 33, 35, 37, 40, and 43, I think, or 39 and 43, I think. So if we had to go through those PBs, uh, Mike, which one would you kind of look back on as uh, as being your favourite? Probably the half for the, for the reason I said. I mean, the, the 10K, I think, was an equally good run. But I think the half, getting under 70, was was special because it was just under 70. I think a lot of runners would be more pleased with a sub 230 marathon than a sub 70 half, but maybe that's because they don't execute the marathon quite right. And I generally have, have executed a few good marathons, but yeah, I'd, I'd say the half. And if there's one that you kind of like to go back on and uh, maybe improve on? Uh, the five miler, that's, that, that's yeah. weak. Talk us through kind of how you got into kind of running in the first place with a, a background in from school or you're involved in other sports? How did it kind of all come about? Okay, so I am not a skillful sportsman at all. If I kicked a football, it's gonna go 90 degrees from where I kicked it. I enjoyed activity, but it was pretty clear that I was never gonna make anything of my life doing anything uh, sports related, very poor coordination. Um, and early days, I was not a natural runner, but I enjoyed it. I guess if Park Gun had been around, back then i'd have been the six or seven year old kid who turned up at park run every week and ran 25 minutes and was just happy to run around didn't care about my performance yeah that's that, that that's where that's where it was for me i enjoyed the activity you know i did i did the old sponsored walk and then when there was schools cross country i used to do it i was awful i've come last two races you know there was absolutely no sign of any talent and i still maintain there isn't much sign of talent it's all hard work now um I did make one county schools team. Um, I believe everyone who turned up to the trial made the team that year in sixth form. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> there was not much promise at school, but I loved running. I absolutely loved it. Uh, you know, I'd buy Runners World magazine, um, read some Bruce Teller training program about how to run. I thought running 40 minutes for 10K was the holy grail. I'd uh, do that and then three three days later I'd do something stupid, do far too much mileage, blow up and be back to square one. But fast forward to 1997, I've just done my A-levels. I'm in August birthday, so the youngest in the school, um, the youngest in the year rather, didn't go straight to uni, took a year out 
and just while I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, um, I did end up traveling a little bit later in that year, but I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Okay, I'll find a job. Um, the first day I went to that job, the traffic was so bad going home. I thought, well, I'm quite close to Aldershot. I do know Mick and some of the other guys. I've met Tomo before, um, Chris Thompson, sorry, before, and some of the other guys. Why don't I get in touch with Mick and just say, you know, can I come down and run with you guys? So I started doing sessions at Aldershot, basically because I was working nearby. And it all started from there. So the first session I did was a Tuesday or a Thursday night. Mick didn't quite know what to do with me. Chris Thompson was on basically an end of season break and was doing 12 200s. So he said, go out there with Chris and do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, your first, so your first official session was 200s of Chris Thompson? Yeah, I mean, they were more like strides on the grass. But yes, it was, yeah. <laughs> how, did, how did that go for you? I loved it. <laughs> it wasn't quite just me and Chris, to be fair. There were, other, there were other people in there as well. But obviously, looking back, it was it was the, it was the group that Chris was in that evening. Yes. So, how, so how old were you at that point? So that was nineteen ninety seven. That nineteen ninety seven. I'd have been just eighteen, like eighteen okay. in a few days. So Chris is two years younger than me. So Chris would have been sixteen. Okay. And then did it just kind of naturally progress from there? You once you got the kind of once you got hooked into it, you got the bug bug and didn't look back. Absolutely. I, I, Absolutely. So I chatted with Mick and he was like, well, you know, what are your targets? And I was, I want to break 40 minutes for 10K. And he's quite blunt. And he said, well, you can go far quick, much quicker than that. Anyone could run that if they, if they train <laughs> properly. <laughs> and um, he was right. You know, within a couple of years later, I was running in the 33s for 10K. Um, and, you know, throughout my, you know, I ran, so I ran my 10K PB in 2002, just after finishing uni. And, yeah, and it Mick really moved me on. Mick, Mick took me from someone who didn't have a clue what I was doing to someone who just got the bug of how to train, how to build some sort of structure. Was never a great cross-country runner. Um, I think, interestingly, I've been better at cross-country this time around as a master than I was ever as a senior. I always found the cross-country a little bit a little bit difficult just because I'm quite tall. I'm six foot four, and I'm not the most gainly mover over the mud. Yeah, Mick, sort of between 1997 and 2003, when I did my first marathon, Mick got all of my PBs, got, he got, got all of my PBs except for the marathon and the half out of me. So he, he turned me really from someone who wasn't doing very much at all into someone who was, uh, at most clubs, would be considered a fairly good club runner. I understand all the shots a little bit different. I was still doing okay in the club scene, but just quite quite down the order shot, the order yeah. shot rankings. I suppose that, that that's an interesting question, isn't it? Is, do do you feel that you would have reached the peaks that you did in your kind of running career at a lesser club um, with a different coach if you were kind of a bit a big fish in a small pond, as it were? Uh, I'm not sure. I think I mean anyone who knows me who's done his sessions knows there's a lot of volume in them, and I responded quite well to it. Yeah. Um, it, it, so it, it, it depends. And um, there was never any shortage of, of good guys to get to get to get stuck in with on the back of the sessions. And, and, and there never is in that group. And even to this day, I still drop in from time to time and do the odd session with them. Yeah. OK, then they're all 25 years younger than me now. But it still works exactly the same. I heard a good quote, actually, on a podcast over the weekend, that if you're the best runner, if you're the best runner in the group, then you're in the wrong group. Basically, if you're looking to improve. Um, I think I think there's a lot to be said for that, yeah. 
So in terms of um, in terms of your PBs, you you kind of strikingly have two kind of golden it gold, golden kind of time period where you got all your PBs, two thousand and two to two thousand and three, and then two thousand and seven to two thousand and eight. Uh, I suppose the um, short stuff was early on and your kind of marathon, half marathon was later on. But was there any reason for that? Was that just kind of how it fell in terms of training or was there any other factors? Well, um, I think a lot's to do with the fact that I stepped up to the marathon in 2003. So I had a conversation with Mick and I told him I was going to get a championship place for London 2004. He didn't seem overly convinced I had it in me, to be honest. I'm not, not going to lie about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I think I think the words might have been I'm not sure I'm 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 not sure you'll ever make a marathon and you'll ever make a marathon runner and that that just uh, that just spurred me on even more. So um, the Luton Marathon was in December 2003. I worked out meticulously that if I ran six minute miling, that would finish me in about 2:37 2:38. That would give me a seven minute margin to run my 2:45. So even if I blew up horrifically, I'd just about managed to run my 2:45. So I travelled to Luton, started off at six minute miling, letting them all go. Um, there was also a three stage marathon relay. So there were people around me, but the marathon runners was all gone. And I was about third or fourth, just held it to 20 miles, held it to 20 miles. And it felt so easy. Got to 20 miles in about 159.40. I looked up the road and I could see the lead bike and the lead car. And I thought, well, let's go for this now. And I ran a sub 36 minutes last 10K to run uh, 2.35. So I ran 2.35 on a hilly course, not dissimilar to the Isle of Wight in my debut, and that was it. But of course, from then on, I was running a PB every other year at the marathon. So I was still improving. It was just 2008 was when I got to my peak. Yeah. But every year basically looked the same. So I'd start my, uh, it's probably best to start in September. In September, I'd start a sort of an, an autumn cross-country season, get to about Christmas time and start the marathon build-up, be absolutely blown to pieces in April, come back, and manage the track and field team. We'll get into the management in a bit and some of these other bits and pieces. I knew I'd never run another PB on the track having done a marathon, so I wasn't particularly bothered about what I did and just messed around in the summer just doing whatever track and field events needed covering. So I trained through the summer, but it was sort of a case of just running a little bit slow if we were short someone in the, you know, I did a lot of steeple chases. If we were short someone in the four hurdles, I'd do that. I'd do whatever was needed and then get serious again in the autumn. So from about 2003 to 2010, that was my annual pattern. Work-wise, um, so I graduated from my first degree in 2001 and I worked um, sort of office Monday to Friday, nine to five for a couple of years. And then since 2003, I've worked shifts and I've also done a master's at Loughborough in 2004 to 2008. So that was part-time. And that was great fun because I've won a few um, booster marathon titles as well. Which... <laughs> It's it's soft. I don't I don't I don't feel you can you can put me in the same ranking as anyone else who's on a British student's title. But um, as as, as um, the late great George Gandhi said to me, well, they all they all count. And thank you very much. You're still getting us points. <laughs> yeah, sad, sad news about uh, about George before the weekend. Uh, uh, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely gutted, and um, I've got got some great stories about George as well. But um, yeah, absolutely gutted. Got to, you know, Loughborough's lost an absolutely great man who sets so much up to make that place the amazing place it is today. Um, what was Mick's reaction when you ran so well in your first marathon? Um, he was pleas pleasantly pleased for me, as he always is when I when, when I ran well. To be fair, I prepared for it 
I prepared for it all right. So in the autumn, I've done a standard um, autumn cross-country season. But on the Sunday long runs, I'd go out for half an hour, 45 minutes before meeting up with the other guys if I was running with another group. Yeah. So quite often I'd get a two-hour, two 15-minute run in and the last 90 minutes would be a little bit quicker. And that's okay. something I've carried through to this day. Um, and also just to pick up something you said there about um, jumping into the track and field events. Um, I dropped you a note, I think it was earlier on today, saying I've never seen somebody so prolific on power of 10. Le less in volume, but more in events competed in. <laughs> um, I'll be honest, I don't know what some of the events on that list are. I was trying to work some of them out um, by the kind of uh, the, 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 the letters of them. Is there anything that you haven't tried in terms of track and field, apart, apart from the throwing events, maybe? Um, I've done all the throws. I've done all the jumps. Okay. I've done the whole Olympic. I've done the whole Olympic program except the walk. The walk's the okay. only the only, yeah. Olympic, the only Olympic event I haven't done. Um, okay. When I started competing for the track and field team, it was managed by a guy called Dave Rogers, and Dave knew that I was always good. If we didn't have a B-string javelin throw, I'd always pick it up and chuck it twenty meters just to get a point. Get and a if point, I could yeah. beat a B-string, and if I could get a B-string, I might get two points. And so it was pretty obvious that when he stepped aside, I was the person to ask to be the team manager um, for the track and field team. Um, and anyone who's been to kind of you know league meetings will uh, will, will be well versed in seeing people kind of chuck a draft chuck a draftlin ten yards or a shot put kind of two yards and just kind of walking away just to pick up a point for their team. So absolutely, absolutely. But then it gets difficult because then you look at someone else doing the same and you think, well, if I put a bit more into it, I could beat him and I won't come last. My question is, how, how did you avoid the walk? Because the walk's just a classic kind of get somebody in there just to get the point. So how on earth did you avoid that one for so many years? Um, right, two things. Firstly, there isn't a walk in the Southern Men's League, so that's that oh, one. Okay. And secondly, even if there was, Aldershot actually has got a fairly good walking section. Okay. So it would have, would have been a desperate day if you were being asked to do it. It would have been a very desperate day indeed, yeah. So... So, yeah, so moving on to um, a really interesting part of your kind of running journey has been how involved you got into the men's team and such, such a successful men's team as well. How did you kind of develop into that side of things? Well, like I said, it was starting off on the track and field team and all the short, we are not a track and field specialist club. We've got a track and field team. We're almost a club of two halves. The, the endurance side is national class. The... Where we did do well was that we always had fresh legs for all of the different distance events. So some other teams would turn up and they'd have people doubling up doing the eight and the 15 or the five and the chase or whatever else. Whereas we always had fresh legs throughout the, throughout the distance because we had so many distance runners. I just didn't, didn't like seeing the events being unfilled. But then in 2007, I got asked, um, the then uh, road and cross country manager, he, he, he retired from that and I got asked to take that on. So I don't do the track and field team anymore. I, I only do the road and cross country. And yeah, I've been doing it for about 13 years, I think. Just give us a bit of an insight into kind of what managing the road and cross country teams mean, you know, in terms of the work goes in. Ultimately, how you balance that with your own running. It's, it, come, it ebbs and flows. The championships, so the cross country championships are a bit of workload, getting all the entries correct, getting everyone entry, entered into the race they want to enter. Uh, back in the day, the clubs used to pay a fee to enter the championship and could put down as many names as they liked. So back then it was easy. You'd pay 100 quid for, to enter the south of England and you could put 36 names down and you just enter them all. Whereas now it is per athlete with the chip timing and everything else. 
So we very much want everyone who wants to run to get an entry, but we don't want to be entering people when they've got no intention of running at all. Okay. So it's a case of working out who's available. But again, the cross-country champs are kind of easier because we can enter as many as we want and then they've just got to turn up and run. It's the relays that are a little bit more difficult, balancing, getting the right people entered, the right people there on the day, selecting the right teams and keeping keeping those who don't make the team still feeling like they're involved. Um, so let me just kind sure. of run through a few names um, that you will have had kind of direct management with. Um, and I'm sure our listeners would have heard of um, some of these, if not all of them. So um, Andy Vernon, Chris yeah. Thompson, Jack Rowe, Ben Bradley, Johnny Hay, Josh Grace, Adam Clark, Joe Morwood, Elliot Robinson, who we've talked to on the show, uh, Ben Morrow, Stephen Scullion, who I didn't actually realise ran for Oldershot. So until you that that, that 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 was a few that was a few years ago. He's now um, realigned himself to being an Irish runner and runs for an Irish yeah. club. But yeah, for about five years, he was he was he was a character. He's a good lad though. He had some good he had some good runs for us, but he was a real yeah. character, as I'm sure I'm sure a lot of his followers will know. So yeah, so so all names that you've had kind of direct influence of and been directly involved with. I mean, I suppose it's a bit of a difficult question, but who's kind of stood out really over all of those great runners in terms of perhaps being the most talented or the one that's impressed you most? Well, in terms of the talent, just before we get onto that, I mean, there, there are a couple more at the moment who I think deserve a mention, and they are Richard Allen and Ellis Cross. And even then, I feel, you know, maybe I should throw in people like Gus Cockle, Ricky Harvey, Alex Point. I mean, the, the, the names just keep coming. And to put it into perspective, right. the last full season we had that was 2019, we had five AFD men go sub 14 minutes for 5K, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. But 22 went sub 15 minutes for 5,000 or 5K on the road okay. or for an intermediate split in a 10K. And that's just incredible to have 22, to have a squad of 22 guys of what you would call a really good club runner. But in terms of what stood out, there, there, there are so many, but seeing an athlete may, make a major track games is something really special. So I was in the London 2012 stadium on Super Saturday, obviously the night that Mo won and everything else. But seeing Tomo in the 10,000, even though he wasn't the very best Chris Thompson we've ever seen, seeing someone who I've trained with for 15 years or trained with on and off, first trained with 15 years ago, running around in that 10,000, that was as good for me as watching Mo kick away and win it. Someone who you actually know. So that was special. And likewise, Ben Morrow, someone I've known for a great many years as well, um, in Glasgow 2014, his second Commonwealth Marathon. That was really good on the, on the streets of Glasgow, going back and forth across the city, probably scoring four or five times. And then this one was on the telly, but watching Andy Vernon win European silver and bronze in 2014 in Zurich, those are the, those are the championship highlights. Also, I've been to the European Cross and World Cross quite a few times to spectate, and it's just really good, you know, going there with the AFD flag, it's a pretty safe bet we're going to have representatives in the team and watching them put on that GB kit, whether it's their first one, whether it's their 10th one, and just watching them give all to run for GB in the championships. There's nothing that beats that. Kind of what do you think is the key to uh, Aldershot producing and keep producing a kind of world-class athletes? Because, I mean, you know, I mean, we're not, we're, not, we're not directly talking about the ladies as well, but ladies like Steph Twelve, Charlotte Perdue, um, Amelia Gurekha, 
you know, Beth Potter, Jess Andrews. It, I mean, it's just an absolute production line of kind of world-class talent, really. Okay, so interestingly, so the first people say, the first thing people say is, well, all the shot and Farnham are small towns. And they are. All shot and Farnham in themselves are pretty small towns. But they are actually part of a much, much larger built-up area, which includes Farnborough, Fleet, Camberley, Frimley. And over 350,000 people live within five miles of the track. And probably getting on for three quarters of a million people because you're getting out to the outskirts of Reading. You've got Guildford, Woking, bits of Basingstoke, all included live within 10 miles of the track. So it's a populated catch, catchment area, relatively affluent, you know, compared to other bits of the UK. The kids have got supportive parents, so, and the club's got a tradition. So success breeds the success, but you, you, you're starting from a very good place. You're starting from an incredibly good place because, of course, before the current generation of athletes, we had Christina Boxer, Zola Budd, Roger Hackney, Bernie Ford, uh, the Tucks, you know, we were a really successful club in the 70s as well, the 70s and 80s as well. So we are known as a successful club and we've got a large catchment area. And then also Mick works at St Mary's University in Twickenham in southwest London, which is about 20 miles away. Lots of the club's youngsters go up to St Mary's um, when they finish, have historically gone to St Mary's. And we always pick up a few who've moved down to Twickenham from the north and the Midlands who just decide they've come from a small town club. They want to move on to the next thing. And because there's quite a strong order shop presence at St Mary's in the first place and they know Mick, some of them just elect to move clubs and join the club anyway. And one more thing is that order shop's traditionally a military town. And um, there's another coach, Tad Dicker, who's a really good guy. He coaches a lot of what you call more of the club type men. But he's inherited a group from Keith Donkin that's got lots of army athletes in it as well. So we've got a fair production line of your sort of 32, 33 minute people coming through a completely different route as well, which just adds to the depth of the club when we're packing 30 into, into the top 100 in the Hampshire League cross country, which we, which we sometimes do. But to put it into context, of the 22 guys I mentioned earlier who ran sub 15, 10 of them have never run for another club before they joined AFD. So 10 of them have been from AFD, either from being under 13 or they came to the sport a bit later and they've never run for another club. Um, seven of them live within 15 miles of the club, but did transfer in at some stage, be it age 15 or 17 transferring in from Camberley. Or you've got people like Andy Vernon, who now lives five miles away in Blackwater, or who transferred from Stubbington Green, or Adam Clark, who lives in Ascot with Charlotte Perger, who transferred in. So um, Adam Clark transferred in when he was at St Mary's. And then another five, are St Mary's based. So it's still very predominantly a locally based club, but we build on it. You know, we, we, we attract people who want to be part of a successful club and a successful team because we always, we're always going to be there or thereabouts. And it's a short career when people want to have the opportunity of running the national swell stage, the national six stage, being in teams that are going to be there or thereabouts. We're not, we're not, the, we're not necessarily the best. We're not going to win it every year. But I want to be in the position where my athletes know that we're always going to be taking teams and we're always going to be challenging these things. Which, which leads us perfectly, really, into talking about a couple of the successes, particularly on the road in the national relays. So you're looking at the 12 stage in 2010 and the 6 stage in 2014. So am I right in saying that you would have been, would have been a manager at the time for both of those? Um, I think we actually last only won the 12 stage in 2004, and that was before my time. But that was a great team. I think we won the 6 stage in 2011 and the 6 stage again in 2014. But we haven't run the 12 stage, which is the one I really wanted to win, 
back in 2019, I think. We haven't won that since 2004. And I was there that day, but I wasn't the team manager. So 2011, um, that's an interesting one. So Josh Goretzky ran leg one. So Josh is Amelia's brother. Um, he's not running anymore, but Josh ran leg one. Martin Mashford, um, who's now over in Australia, doing some great work over there, organising races in Australia. Martin ran leg two, and he, he's still running. Um, Johnny Hay was on the third leg. Um, Andy Vernon on leg four. Stephen Scullion on leg five. And Ben Morrow on leg six. So all of them, except Josh Koretsky, have been to an international champs for GB. And that was really that, that that was really special that day. 144.51 is a good time for the sixth stage. And that was really pleasing. And then we won it again in 2014. And um, that year was Josh Grace on one. Um, Toby Smith, who's a local lab, he was at Birmingham Uni at the time. He's on leg, leg two. Elliot Palmer on three. Um, Johnny Hay on four. And then Ian Bailey and finally Joe Morwood um, finishing it off. Maybe give an insight in for our listeners as to kind of the race day attitude, really, of uh, of the elite runners that you mentioned in there. I, I, I don't feel I can add a lot in terms of telling them how to run. You know, they've all got their own coaches. They're much more successful, much more talented than I've ever been. I just need to make sure that they've got all the information they need. Uh, crucially, they're there on time. We've had we've had some last minute panics because you know we, we we don't we don't do a hotel the night before Sutton Park. We always travel up on the day ourselves. Just generally car sharing. You know it's it's no different from what your club will do. There's nothing special. We don't get a coach. We don't have any money for any of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's just a case of making sure they've all got their numbers laid out. You know their pins. Make sure they know exactly what time they're going to start. Everything else like that. Who they're taking over from. Who they're handing over to. But they're all generally very, very reliable. They've been doing it for years through the age groups. It's interesting. There are some of them super reliable. So Andy Vernon's super reliable. Andy will tell me at the start of a season, I'll say to Andy, what you're available for this year. And he'll say, I've looked at it. I only want to do two races this year. It's going to, two club races this year. It's going to be the National Cross and the National 12 stage. Okay. He'll, tell me this in September. he'll tell me this in September. I'm doing a race in February for you and a race in April for you. And that's it. And then in February, two weeks before the National Cross, I say, are you still up for it? And he said, yeah, well, I said I'd do it. Of course I'll be there. You know, that, that just, that's just Andy, Andy to, to a T. He's a, he's a soldier's son. His dad was a soldier. Just yeah. absolutely reliable. And apart from the injury he's recently got, you know, if Andy's told you he's going to be there, he's going to be there. Whereas there are other people who, you know, they're, they're a little bit, as their confidence goes up and goes down, just need, need to keep the dialogue going to know exactly, know exactly where they are. What's your kind of approach in terms of um, kind of maintaining the relationships with kind of athletes and coaches? And, you know, I presume you're kind of dealing with some big characters, not just as the athletes, but also the kind of coaches behind the scenes. So, I mean, firstly, it's dialogue. So I do try and speak with the coaches before I pick, before I pick the athletes, try and find out how their athletes are going. I can't ask Mick Woods for input as to how a Tad Dicker athlete's going. So, you know, I have to speak to the athletes and I have to speak to the coaches of that athlete to get a picture of how they've been going in training. Are there any issues I need to know about? You know, any injuries I need to be aware about? Because sometimes it's a risk-reward thing. You might have someone who's quite fit, but particularly on a relay, they might be carrying, carrying something that could be catastrophic if it goes wrong. So you've got to make the decision based on that. But there's a couple of things. Firstly, we always want to qualify our B team for the sixth stage and occasionally we've done it for the 12th stage as well. 
so the club runners are more likely to get a run in so that even if you don't make the A team, you're still likely to go out there and get a run. And generally speaking, the athletes know, the, 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 even the internationals, if they are not good enough to be in the A team, they will more than happily turn up and run in the B team. Look at some of those names that we've had running our B team over the years, because fundamentally they want to go there and get a race. I try and be as upfront with them as possible, and they're generally quite realistic. And finally, I always pick the best team I possibly can. Some people will run equally well on leg 11 out there by themselves in a gale. Other people, it will be a two-minute difference between running a long leg on leg one or leg three compared to running later on. Um, you know, some just don't have some. Some don't have the head risk at all, and that's why, going back to Elliot's interview, I had to run him where I ran him, and he feels he let the side down. He most certainly did not let the side down. There was no one else I could have run in that position on that day. It was it, it was just it was just the way it panned out. He was the experienced one. He was the mature one. He ran he ran fairly well that day. We just weren't the best team on the day. What do you take most pleasure out? of winning the sixth stage as a manager or getting a PB as a runner? They're completely different. I get equal pleasure in completely different ways um, from them. You know, at the end of the day, I'm happy for more I'm happy for more people when we win it as the manager. You know, I can see the joy it brings to all of them as well. Um, it's not so much for me, it's for them. And I'm so happy to be a to be a part of that. That's a really interesting question. I've probably never never thought of it before. They're they're slightly different emotions. Winning the national and let's go back to winning the national cross country championship, which we won at Leeds in 2010 at Round Hay Park. That was a really good day. So Andy Vernon won it that, that year. Interestingly, four of the six of that are now living outside the UK. So Andy Vernon won it. Ben Lindsay was ninth. He's now in the states. Martin Mashford was 11th and he's now in Australia. So we had three in the top 11 of the National Cross, which is exceptional. And then we also had Neil Phillips, who's my age. Neil's now living in London, running for Kent AC. And Matt Ashton, who's in Dubai. And Tom Wade, who's gone to Denmark and done really well over there. And I was ninth scorer in 282nd. I think Mick shouted at me, we've won it, when I was about 400 metres from the finished. And I crossed the line and celebrated like I just won the National myself. <laughs> look at me like what <laughs> and it meant so much to me because these are national titles you know anything i do if i win the luton marathon if i win the sig cup 10 miles great you know well done i beat i beat i beat some i i, I beat some other club runners if i run 228 at london great i run a pv it's not winning a national title it's not elite getting to the elite of our sport and that's what these guys do so i'm just full of admiration and so pleased when it all comes together because if they didn't do the running, it wouldn't matter how good a manager I was. If they didn't do the running, you know, there wouldn't be any of it. I just want to kind of move on to into your role as a, well, ultimately as a bit of a race organiser. Um, so you put on a, which, which started out, I believe, primarily as an old shop night, which was a night of the 1500s in September, um, which kind of got rolling and you got some kind of big names attracted to that. So it's all saw the likes of Kate Snowden, Amelia Quirk, and Lily Coward uh, in the women's A race, and then Ben Bradley uh, winning the men's A race in 3:45, just ahead of Ian Pearce in 3:46. Talk to us about how the idea came about um, and kind of the background behind that. Okay, so after the initial lockdown, when tracks started to reopen, um, we got access to our track again for training earlier than some other clubs did. And once England Athletics is our competition, the first thing we had on a Sunday or a Saturday, we had a it was a Saturday morning, we had a closed club competition. So, and that, that, that went really well, it was really popular. 
So I was chatting with our club chair, Mike Neighbour, about what we did next. And we thought we'd have two more meetings. And I said, well, why don't we just have one night just dedicated to 1500 meter races? So we agreed the date and he applied for the permit. And at this point, I want to say apologies to Ben Pochi. It seems like we copied the name of his night of the 10,000 TVs. Um, <laughs> I simply said to my neighbour, yeah, let's have a night of 1500 metres. And the next thing I know, I've got a permit in my inbox. And it's called night of 1500 metres. And I was like, oh, OK, this is, this is, this is, this is a bit awkward. <laughs> it was just, that was just a description of what we wanted to do. Surely we'd have got a better name for it. But um, that's, that's what the permit was and that's what it was stuck with. How did we attract the talent? So um, we knew there was an appetite for races. Every time we spoke to people, we knew that they were trying to get into races and they were selling out. You know, every time anyone put on some races, they were selling out. People were traveling absolutely far and wide to get into races. Um, I was up at the BMC meeting at Lee Valley and floated the idea with a couple of other coaches. So Jeff Jerwood from Hearn Hill, Dave Reagan from Basingstoke, Phil O'Dell from Bedford. And he said, listen, we've got the track books. What do you think? And they said, Yep, our athletes are crying out for races, put it on. Uh, we put, I think it was 70 open places. So I took AFD entries first, took 70 places for other clubs, and they sold out within a day. And I think that um, this is something that we've talked about in the podcast quite a lot, is the kind of credit that guys like yourself, clubs that have actually kind of come on the front foot, really, in this time and got races on for runners, um, you know, at a time that, like you say, everyone's, everyone's kind of desperate to race. The first night was absolutely lovely weather, a really, really still evening. That's why we got the quick times. We had a second meeting that had 15s and 3,000s. The weather wasn't as good for that one. But again, we got a lot of entries to that one. It was just nice to get two open open meetings on. I mean, we could talk all night about so many different things here, Mike. I just want to, I just want to kind of get, get have a bit of a chat with you about your some of your opinions on the current club running scene, really. Um, I mean, particularly... We're seeing this kind of rise of independent or sponsored teams like Western Tempo in the kind of Cheltenham area. Obviously, as someone that is is so kind of ingrained in the club scene, are you kind of aware of this kind of maybe growing, you know, growing independent scene, as it were? I am. I'm a little bit sceptical because we've been here before, haven't we? Those who've been around for a while will remember there were clubs called Box Hill Races in the late 80s, 90s, Rally Harriers, Omega. And yeah. they were set up for exactly the same reason. And where are they now? You can put together a team. I completely accept you can put together a team of six or eight strong guys together and they can win the sixth stage. Absolutely. But they don't have the strength of depth that Leeds have, Tunbridge, Highgate, Morpeth, Knott, Bristol and West. Us, you know, these teams who have got the depth and that's where our 22 very good club runners come into themselves because we lose someone and we've got someone else that's not straight back in. Yeah. And that's where really these teams, it will be good up to a point, but I think without the production line of youngsters coming through, do they think that the existing clubs that they leave behind when they weaken are going to be developing the same level of youngsters coming through? Because I just don't think that's going to be the case. I'd also say that their backers are going to need quite deep pockets. You either go down the current club model where we've got, where everyone does it for the love of it and everyone does it for free, or you'd need a volunteer. And because if you're talking about, and I don't know what test, what Western Tempo, I take it, um, is that Dave Newport's, it's Dave Newport involved in that? That's, that's right. Yeah. So he's, that's exactly right. Yeah. So Dave Newport's set up 
set a Western tempo and predominantly Charlton Harriers. So, firstly, Dave's an incredible coach, and I've got a lot of time for him. I've you know I spoke to him a lot a lot over the years. Um, I just I just wonder where the resource will come in it happening. Yeah, you know, either is he got someone or someone who's a big fan to be funding it themselves? Because I think in order to do it properly, you'd possibly need a volunteer working full time, or you'd literally need certainly a fifty thousand plus budget in order to pay for a lot of the stuff you need to be doing. Because if you were doing something different, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think I I just think that it could turn into a bit of a money pit in terms of that. And I don't think there'd be the appetite for local businesses sponsoring it unless they've got some people who are much better at marketing than I am. And I'll, I'll, I'll fully admit that that might be the possibility. But I really think that the lack of depth and no conveyor belt bringing the talent through might mean in the long term, we end up going back to what we've, to what we've got now. I'm not, I'm, I'm, not unduly, I'm, not, I, I'm not unduly worried. I'd be, I'd be far more concerned um, if there, 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 are some, there are bigger threats to our club than that, I feel. There are bigger, bigger threats to the current, the current club scene than that. And good, and good, good luck to them. If a group of guys think that they want to want to get together and put together a very small club that they think they can do it, then, then good, good, good luck to them. But I think there's a reason why we've got the big established clubs that have got the training pathway to bring the young athletes through. I think there's a reason for that. So I, mean, I was going to ask you about kind of what improvements you kind of, you know, you, you made to the, I suppose, the current club running team. But I, I suppose exactly like you just said, a, a much more interesting question is, you know, what are the threats to the current club running scene? Um, I think everything else, everything's just getting a lot more expensive. And in terms of getting access to facilities, particularly in the current coronavirus situation, um, I, I hear of some clubs that haven't been on their tracks even even now. You know, yeah. they, the local track owners are difficult. So, so getting the access there, you know, some of the clubs, because people are competing for longer and longer themselves, we are not getting the steady supply of volunteers. Um, life's got a lot busier, you know, people aren't able to retire in at 60, 62, 63, like they used to be able to, people are having to work longer. And, you know, it's just, it's just a completely different situation to what life was like in the eighties, nineties and, and, and more recently. Um, and, you know, the clubs that are lucky enough to have really, really committed volunteers or people who are in a position where they've semi-retired from work a little bit early or have jobs that allow them to be flexible with their time, they're in a hugely strong position. But um, I think I think it's it's becoming tougher and tougher. Um, you know, people are people are having to live their lives and pay for their lives, and it's tougher and tougher to give up a big chunk of your time to to volunteering to manage a club or coach. You know, coaching is a real is a real difficult thing. And and, and I'm not the person to ask about coaching. You know, I've, I've never been a coach. You know, I can coach myself, but that's about it. Um, but I, I, I think that some of the struggles, some of the, some of the coaches are currently going through. I, I, won, I, I wonder where the next, where the next breed of coaches is coming from. Sometimes we, 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 we're not without our own problems. We're having incredible difficulties with um, the land manager who managed the playing fields next to our track at the moment. You know, that's what something I've been focusing on this weekend. Um, you know, trying to allow us to do reps on the grass, on the flooded grass next to the football pitches. We've been we've been training out there for 60 years. Yeah. We're just currently we're just having incredible difficulties getting access to this grass. You know, they're charging it, charging us for more and more for it. It's just, it's incredibly difficult. And you know, if we lose that, that could be absolutely devastating to us. We we've had a having similar issues at Worcester in that 
due to the numbers, we're having to stretch it out over an extra club night in the week. So it's gone from Tuesdays, Thursdays to Wednesdays to kind of keep social distancing. But then the landowners who are kind of a local sports centre won't turn the lights on <laughs> on a Wednesday. So apparently last yeah. week, the training session was, was done in darkness, you know, which is exactly kind of goes into what you were saying about the, uh, you know, the, the, the challenges that are out there at the moment. Well, I think I think a lot of clubs are in the same situation. I know um, Shireen Barber at Windsor and Eaton, she's Windsor Eaton Hands, so she's got the same situation um, at the moment, you know, just trying desperately to buy battery-operated floodlights and all the sorts of things like this in order to just try and get, because we, 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 we all do it. We all do it because we want to develop, you know, develop people and get them the love, the love for running. And to be honest, by the time you get into your 20s, yeah, you can go out there and do it by yourself. A lot, a lot of it by yourself. It's the younger ones who you need to keep their love, their love of the sport, because otherwise they'll get out the end of it, and they'll be playing football, or they'll be playing rugby, or they'll be doing something else. We'll have lost them. We'll have lost a huge generation, and that's the big worry that I, the we have a club have got. And I'm sure you, you feel exactly the same. Listen, Mike, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you go about your Sunday evening um, shortly. I've just got. A, we're going to do some uh, a few quick fire questions that we like to finish with, but I do just want to pull out an anecdote that I learned about you today, which is that you are officially the first person in Great Britain to win two park runs on the same day. In fact, I'm going to change that. Potentially the, the first person in the world to win two park I'm, runs I'm, on the same day. I'm definitely the first person in the world, but they don't like calling it winning a park run. They like calling it first finisher. So I'm, I'm, the, first first, yeah. record, I'm the first person to record two first finishes. Um, actually, the second person to record two first finishes was about two minutes behind me because that was the first lady. Um, okay. That day, she had she she, she had she had the same idea as me. But um, cast your mind back to uh, June 2010. Just scrolling through my power of ten as we speak. Um, the 19th of June 2010, and there weren't very many park runs at the time. There were maybe 10 or 15 park runs, and the weekly email went out, and they said. Just for your information, Crystal Palace will start at 10 a.m. this week. And I thought, hang on, there's an opportunity. So I went to Greenwich and I ran pretty easy. I was first finisher in 1833. Um, and then jumped in the car, footed it over to Crystal Palace and was first finisher in 1705. And that was a new um, that was a, a new course record for the time for Crystal Palace. That was only Crystal Palace of Park Run number four. Um, so it was very early days for Crystal Palace, but yeah, that was my own little piece of park, park run history. Obviously, since then, I've done it a couple more times on New Year's Day, but I think I've been beaten in that record, as quite a few others by Mr. Martelletti, who's done it a few times more than me, me since, but I can at least say I got there first. Do you know what? I suppose at the time in 2010, that was quite a nice kind of novel thing to happen. But then as the years have gone by and Park Run has become this absolute monster, to have that statistic by your name is uh, well, it's something to retire on, really, isn't it? Well, the funny thing is, in 2010, I convinced myself I was going to be first finisher at every Park Run in the world before I'd given that money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, we had no idea they'd be starting 20 new ones a week some weeks, you know, when it, when it, was, a peak, when it was a peak Park Run. But really, I thought, yeah, I could finish first here and then I'll go and finish first there and I'll finish first there and I can collect a lot. <laughs> like I say, we'll finish off with a couple of quick fire questions. Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot with a couple of these. If you could go for a run with one athlete, dead or alive, who would it be? 
Um, well, this one's quite selfish. I want to look a little bit further down my running pathway and um, just want to ask someone, what do I do to keep running well into my 50s and 60s? So I guess the man at the moment would be Tommy Hughes on that one. Okay, so if you could if you could only choose one race a year to compete in, which one would you choose? That's a race rather than distance. Sure. Can I bring back a defunct race that doesn't happen anymore? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll bring, I'll bring back the, the Hillingdon Five. That's an easy one. Um, okay. Put on by Hillingdon AC. Everyone, loves, everyone would love that one who's run it in the past. It was a quality afternoon club race, um, Saturday, 3 o'clock. And, you know, you typically have... 30, 40, 50, maybe even 100 people sub 25 minutes for five miles. Just an absolute, an absolute club, club, club storming race. Just the, the, the type that we, that we really missed today. I'm actually going to go back to Tommy Hughes' answer and I'm going to trick you in a, a bit of a curveball because you've only seen this one. But would you choose longevity or PBs? Going forward, I, I, I know this one. I would want to keep on running and enjoy my running going forward well into my 60s and 70s. If I never if I never run another PB again, I don't care. As long as I can achieve enjoyment, you know, when I, I, so I was injured from 2010 to about 2016 and we never quite got to the bottom of what it was. And I'm fine now, so goodness knows. Um, but I really missed being able to go out and run and run as much as I wanted. Yeah. As long as I can go out and run at a level that's commensurate with me feeling I'm doing my best, that's all that matters to me. I don't care if I'm, you know, when I got back running, I didn't care if I was coming at 10th at park running outside 20 minutes. As long as I was racing and feeling myself yeah. good in what I'm doing, please, please let, let this carry on as long as it possibly can. I suppose that's when you find out the answer to that, your own question with that after you're coming back for an injury or when you've kind of had a dip in form or whatever it might be and you realise, you know, what it's all about. So, yeah, but uh, just, 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 just enjoy the process of the running and, and the results yeah. will fall into, will fall into, fall, fall into their own place. A couple more, track, road or country? Um, probably road, although this year, weirdly, I really enjoyed the National Cross and that, that mud pit at Nottingham. But yeah, pro pro probably road these days. Um, favourite shoe that you've ever competed in? I've only competed in, I've only run in them twice, but for me it's got with the Alpha They were amazing. And if I can run 235 on a hilly course, age 41 in a storm, they must be good. I wonder what could I have run at my best. I reckon, I reckon they're, they're, they're well worth three to five minutes. But hey, they're legal. You know, Absolutely. people are going to hate it. People who don't run there anymore are going to hate it. But what do you expect me to do? Give the other guys on the start line a three-minute head start? You know, it's my hobby. I'll go and pay stupid amounts of money for this pair of shoes and run as fast as I can. When we were kind of emailing a few weeks ago, I know that you were uh, you were trying out the Dragonfly as well, weren't you, on the track? I think you're the, I think you're the I first. I had the Dragonfly. Yeah. I had the drag. Well, the interesting thing is Tim Gross, who a lot of the listeners will, lo will know, listeners to this podcast will know, he's, you know, he's another... And another data data geek. I mean, he does all of his YouTube um, stuff with all the different shoes. Tim's got the same shoe size as me, which is UK 13. So okay. Tim, if he manages to get a pair of 13s, if I manage to get a pair of 13s, we pop each other a message and say, there's some 13s in stock of this. So I was at work late one night and I got a message come through from Tim saying, such and such a stock is have got dragonflies in UK 13. And I just didn't need to think twice. Like, it's weird. I know I'm probably never really going to race, race on the track again, but I just wanted to try them. So I, I ordered them. Um, I did some strides for our 3000 the week before the marathon in the dragonflies, but then I thought running the alpha flies, 
they're not, uh, despite what people say, yes, World Athletics have made a ruling. We don't believe that applies to UK athletics races, and they certainly don't apply to this bloke doing it on a hand-time course, on a club meeting, who doesn't really care about his time. He just wanted to see what the shoes felt like. Yeah. I just thought, run in the, run in the afterflies and see what they feel like before the marathon. And yeah, they yeah. felt good. Okay. And final question, race day nowadays, split shorts or half tights? Split shorts are racing all the time, but when I'm commuting, I run in and out of work a lot, commuting, uh, probably the baggy shorts are working since. I feel slightly self-conscious walking through walking through the office in a pair of split shorts. <laughs> or half tights, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, true, true. So I think, I think the, the, the baggy shorts that have become popular in, in recent years, they're, they're, they're much more useful for just going about your life if you're running as well. <laughs> um, okay, great. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure, Mike, to, uh, to meet you and talk to you and kind of pick your brains and you know, it's one of the one of these interviews that, to be honest, I feel like we could kind of talk for hours and hours. So um, maybe we'll have you back on in the future in a, in, a, in a few more episodes and pick your brains about the bits that we've missed. Um, but yeah, good luck to you getting the cross country on, um, and uh, of course over the next few months. Well, thank you very much. And I'm just I'm just hoping, from a personal point of view, we get some some marathons in April next year, be it Wrexham. Austin, whatever, just give give me another marathon next year, please. I just, you know, I feel I feel there's so much more to come. So maybe maybe not an out and out PB, but I was so pleased with how last Sunday went. I just want to get out there and do it all again. I'm sure you're echoing what most people are thinking as well. That's uh, that that's kind of what we all want, isn't it? Is that one chance at keeping the races going, and even if it's in the spring, at least it's something to aim for. But okay. Thank you for joining right. us, Mike. And uh, yeah, take care and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike.